Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new The Hacker Factory podcast with hacker maker Philip Wiley. You're about to discover what the role of a professional hacker entails, the different specializations it holds, and what it takes to learn and become one. Enjoy the conversation as Philip and guests unveil the secrets of professional hacking, a mysterious, intriguing, and often misunderstood occupation. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Wiley, the Hacker Maker. In each episode, I have a guest sharing their tips and tricks on getting into the field of cybersecurity and excited to have Nathan Sportsman joining me today. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So how's your how's your day going so far? I can't complain. Life is life is good. How about yourself? Oh, good. So you're in consulting, so are things slowing down any, or you get a lot of people that last minute pen tests and stuff trying to spend the budget? It, exactly. End of year is always fun. That's where the, the, the big push is, and we're, we're right in the middle of that right now. Things will kind of settle down starting in, starting in January. I've seen both sides of that. I worked for a company one year, and we had like a million dollars to to burn up like between November and December. So we're able to get a lot of external pen testing done. Yep. Yep. It's typically a use it or lose it. And so people are rushing to, to get everything in kind of, kind of last minute. Yep. You would think, you know, most people think that it's slowing down, but I guess it's, you know, really does it for consultants. It maybe slows down internally for companies, but any projects or trying to spend budget or get things done, get things done before the end of the year. hundred percent. Yeah. And even with the kind of more of the macro, um, in the upcoming recession that everyone's talking about in, in 23, I'm not seeing that. I, I think security is is largely uh, recession-proof, which is good for us, right, in, in this industry. Thing. It's a good thing. You'd hope people wouldn't skimp on that because then the bad guys are just going to use that for leverage to 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 have more successful uh, attacks. Yep, yep, definitely. Uh, I don't think it's a discretionary line item anymore. Now that's that's good that people are, are starting to see that. It can be kind of frustrating sometimes that it's not taken serious enough, but good that it's, you know, companies are starting to take it more seriously. Yeah, yeah 100%. So uh, why don't you share with our listeners uh, about yourself, kind of how you got started and who you are? Definitely. Uh, uh, so my my passion in, in cyber has gone all the way back to high school. So the, the bug bit me a little bit early. Um, I'm a little bit dated and so, you know, Getting into the industry for me was things like Frack Magazine. I don't even know how many listener, listeners are uh, familiar with or remember Frack, you know, IRC, uh, Pound Frack, Pound Hack, that sort of stuff. And I always just had a, a fascination with security because uh, to me, it was like a puzzle, kind of like a problem that that needed to be solved, particularly offensive security. Um, and so my interest goes goes way, way, way back. Uh, going into college, I did electrical and computer engineering, and I actually took my first gig at a company called Sun Microsystems, which is a is now owned by Oracle. And I actually went the software developer route for a bit, doing operating system development, uh, kernel development, things like that, uh, because I thought security was going to be solved <laughs> back then. Uh, and this was, you know, the early 2000s, but I was convinced in the next five years uh, we wouldn't have a cybersecurity industry because all the problems would be solved. Super wrong about that. Wound up uh, working at a couple of other uh, big cybersecurity firms, uh, Semantic and, and McAfee at that time through um, 
inroads with uh, AdStake and Foundstone, which were kind of their consulting arms that they had acquired, and then ultimately jumped in 2010, 2011 to do Praetorian. And here I am now, been doing this for about you know 12 or so, 12 or so years. That's that's a pretty cool career, especially uh, you know hearing Foundstone kind of takes me back because uh, we used to be a fan of the Hacking Exposed books, and most of those folks came from Foundstone. One hundred percent. I had a chance to do Hacking Exposed, I think the sixth and seventh editions, um, and so that was just part of you know working there. You had an opportunity to work on those, and it also uh, got me introduced to people like George Kurtz. He was actually uh, the founder, one of the founders of Foundstone, who now runs CrowdStrike. Uh, Stu McClure, uh, who uh, went on to found Silence, and uh, a couple other people, William Chan and Chris Procise. But I, I loved my experience at Foundstone. It was super entrepreneurial. And there's so many great companies that have come out of that, um, you know, Security Compass and Intrepidus Group. And I, I could name tons and tons of companies, but it was a great environment to learn um, and uh, to, to potentially do your own startup. Uh, very, very great experience. So that was, I'm sure that was kind of, uh, you know, being at Praetorian probably helps kind of relive more of those type of days compared to the big corporate type of security firms nowadays. Yes. And even, you know, McAfee had acquired Foundstone, uh, I want to say in 2008, uh, or maybe it was 2003, actually. Uh, my memory's uh, a little bit joggy there. But even after the acquisition of McAfee, Foundstone was still kind of a contained uh, division within McAfee. We had our own business cards that were black and still stead Foundstone on them. A lot of the old guard that had, you know, been some of the founding security uh, folks were still there. It was a really, really cool environment. Uh, Kevin Mandia, he's another one that came from Foundstone. He was our director of incident response and then went on to found uh, Mandiant. And so, yeah, it was an awesome experience. And not only that, but when I decided to jump, part of the way that I was able to get Praetorian uh, going was they would actually subcontract work to me because I knew that I was going to do a good job and then I wasn't going to try and steal any of their customers. And it was just a very neat, very collaborative, very supportive environment for sure. Very cool. So you actually founded Praetorian. Uh, yes. Sorry. I, I'm the, uh, the, the founder and CEO. I mean, we're, we're a company that's a hundred or 110 people. So, you know, <laughs> whatever that means for a company of our size, but, but yes, I, I, I did found the company. So how, how long have you, when did you start the company? Uh, well, so here's an interesting part that, that not too many people outside of Praetorian are, are aware of. I actually jumped from uh, Foundstone in 2008. So they, they must have been acquired in 2003, 2004. And I jumped in November of that year and I did not understand the macro and, you know, the Great Recession and the financial collapse. Uh, I was an engineer and so I didn't have at that time, I didn't have a super interest in, in, in economics. And boy, I wish I had. Uh, because that was the wrong time to start a, a, a company and uh, everything just dried up. And so the the, the gigs from Foundstone, um, AT&T, there were a couple other people that were subcontracting to me. All the revenue and sort of channel relationships that I had just dried up because the world had stopped, right? And so about nine months into it, I want to say mid-2000. Nine, maybe late 2009, I had the 100,000 I had saved up, you know, from the time I was 22 years old. My, my dad was a social worker. My mom was a nurse. We, we didn't come from, um, from money. And so it was me just rubbing pennies together uh, for five years of my career to make the jump. That all got wiped out, uh, you know, maxed out the credit cards like a good little entrepreneur and ultimately didn't know how to pay for my, for my mortgage. And I remember the last month 
that, uh, that I had runway and I just knew like, you know, this isn't a work harder or think smarter, right? Uh, this is going to happen. This is going to fail and there's nothing you can do about it. And, uh, I was dating a girl at the, 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 the time and, and wound up, um, marrying her later because she's stick and stayed with me through that. I wound up going to work for uh, NSA through a contractor for about a year or two, a contractor out of Columbia, Maryland, near the, near the fort. And then in 2010, I jumped again to try Praetorian, saved up uh, money again and, and made the second leap. And this one so far, so good. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, so you, I'd say you have a good, had, had a good run so far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, the, the last, uh, you know, 10 or so years have been, have been great. And I learned a lot through that first experience too, about, you know, what to do and what not to do. So a lot of the focus of the show is to help those wanting to get into cybersecurity. And a lot of people are interested in the offensive side. So what are some tips you would have for someone? If someone is wanting to get into uh, offensive security, what would the educational path and the path into look like? So there's, there's so many things now uh, versus, you know, back when, when I was trying to get into it, uh, that you can kind of get your feet wet and it will also, you know, I, I believe passion leaves traces. It'll also give employers an understanding that you really are dedicated to this, that this is a passion for you. It's something you really want to, to, to be good at. So a couple of things, um, one is CTFs, you know, Pico CTF, and there's so many CTFs that you can, uh, just leverage your time on and, uh, either be on a team or as an individual to like, get really, really good at this stuff. There's also certifications that are uh, fairly reasonable, particularly from the offensive security crew. So like the OSCP, the OSWI, things like that. Uh, we really encourage those uh, for folks that that are coming here, you know, either out of school or maybe it's their their first job to, to get that in their first year. And, and having those kinds of things on your resume, hack the box, right? Um, those give us an indicator that this is something that you really want to do. And we bias towards sort of passion fit and culture fit over task relevant experience, because the way that we think about things is, you know, whatever we, um, whatever you don't know, day one, we're, we're going to teach you or you're going to teach yourself. And so coming in, getting your feet wet and those kind of things that are all free, you know, there's so much great content that's available that really shows a company like us that this is uh, something you want to make a career out of. Very cool. So, uh, what are some other tips you may have for someone that's wanting, wanting to get in, you know, you, having an extensive uh, history of being the hiring manager and hiring people for your team. So what are some things that you look for uh, outside of uh, some of those learning resources that you had mentioned? Uh, so the, there's a couple of things we look for. So uh, one is first principles. And so, you know, either having uh, some background as uh, maybe a system administrator, right? Or a network administrator, maybe having a background in software development, uh, because typically we want to layer security on top of those concepts where we believe, you know, the, the best breakers were once builders. And so having, um, some of that in, in your background for us, we see it as an adjacency to security and it's a, it's a plus one for, for sure. Some other tips outside of, you know, just sort of the technical part, but, um, in terms of interview process and submitting one of the big, you know, things that we screen on is, um, when you submit a resume, do you submit a cover letter, right? Do you want do you want to work at Praetorian or are you just looking for a job? Um, another thing that we we look for during the discovery call, which is a quick kind of 30 minutes call where we're trying to understand, you know, what the candidate is hoping to do in their career is just reading up on the company that you applied to a, a little bit, understand what they do, understand who you're, you're talking to on the, on the phone. 
Um, a lot of candidates are surprised and they don't realize that I, I typically take the first call. Uh, I believe that culture and recruiting, everything starts there and that's the leverage point of a company. Um, and so I hope to, to be able to do that for as long as I can. And just knowing that you're invested in the process, that you really want to be here versus somewhere will we'll go a long ways as, as well. Um, and it's part of that sort of, you know, passion or success uh, has traces. There's other things that we do, like the tech challenges on our website. Um, uh, Modisano, which is now uh, owned and acquired by NCC Group, but they had the famous memory corruption challenge. Uh, we have several challenges like that. And we're looking for people like, you know, do you want to solve a problem simply because a problem exists and it's fascinating and it relates to our space? So we have a crypto challenge. We have a ponable challenge, which is, um, you know, basically like bypassing ASLR sort of exploitation sort of stuff, an ML challenge and, you know, taking the time to do one of those and submit your resume, you will go to the top of the stack, at least in our company for sure. Because again, it's signaling to us that you're dedicated uh, to, to this craft, to this field and, and very interested in Praetorian specifically. I think that's a very neat idea that you have. So someone before they even apply, can go in there and try the challenge. And if they're successful on it, maybe, you know, that will encourage them to go on and apply. So for those that apply the normal route that one would apply for a company, is that still part of the part of the application process? Do they have any type of challenges that they have to complete in the interview process? Um, it, it, so it, it depends uh, for, you know, for someone that's 10 years of experience, we don't necessarily expect them to complete a, a tech challenge. Their experience kind of showcases, you know, their, their capabilities. Uh, but, you know, for someone that's maybe an intern or just coming out of school, doing those types of things will absolutely put you at the top of the heap. It'll guarantee you a phone call with us, right? We're going to want to talk to you um, versus just looking at a resume and deciding if, if we're going to take that next step or not. But it's not, it's not a, a requirement uh, per se. Um, it's just a great starting point, right? And even if you wind up not wanting to take a position with Praetorian or, you know, it doesn't work out for whatever reason, just going through that process of doing one of those tech challenges, you're going to learn a lot, right? You're going to learn a lot about crypto or whatever the specific area is of, of that tech challenge, and you'll be better for it um, in, in terms of your career and your skill set. So yeah, just thinking of that, that would be a great resource for people to to learn, just to go through their work, work through those challenges on your site, even if they don't feel like they're ready to to apply yet. And, and, and to your point, some people do that, do that. I can't tell you how many, you know, I wouldn't even call them applicants, but they'll send us that. We, we ask people to send us a hash, you know, sort of the, the key or the solution at the end of the, the problem. And we'll just get emails to careers at saying, hey, I did your challenge. I really enjoyed it. Here's a solution. Not looking for a job or anything. I just thought it was a lot of fun. Awesome. Like we, we hope to keep in contact with you. And if we ever do get in market and you start looking, we, we would absolutely want to talk to someone like that. Yeah, very cool. So one of the things you see in the industry too that just kind of want your opinion on, you see a lot of these these uh, job requirements out there that are entry level, but they want three to five years <laughs> of experience. Yes. yes. So I would assume based on your culture and some of the people from your team that I met at B-Sides Orlando, you don't seem like a company that that does that type of thing. No. So yeah, it, the, the, the industry is kind of interesting, right? It's kind of a chicken or the egg thing. So we... I think for every job open rec, there's minus four people to fill it. Uh, and so we're, we're underfunded in terms of, you know, people that are in this industry. I think there's something like 800,000 jobs in the U.S. alone. But paradoxically and ironically, everyone or most people that are hiring only want to hire even entry level employees that have, you know, 
like you said, uh, three, sometimes five years of, of experience under the belt. And so how does someone break into this? I, I would say not every company uh, thinks in that way. We, we definitely do not. We will teach you the skill set. We're looking more for, uh, again, passion fit, culture fit, cognitive fit. So it's not about what you know today. It's how quickly you can learn uh, versus the task relevant experience. And, and I'm sure some of the people that you met at at uh, bead size, I know Nick was down there and Michelle was down there. You know, Nick just graduated from uh, CMU not too long ago. Uh, this, I believe, was his first gig after graduation. But he's passionate, right? And he's a culture fit and he's super smart. Absolutely would hire someone like that. Um, I think the industry is going to have to move past that requirement for us to fill these roles. And I think, you know, in the larger macro as a country uh, to, to try and keep, you know, the, the nation safe, we really do need to kind of rethink how we're, we're approaching that. I know a lot of colleges are starting to get NSA Center of Excellences, which is awesome. Um, and we need to continue doing steps like that. Yeah, I think a lot of cases, some employers just under underestimate passion because that's actually how I got my first pen test job. I'd worked in security for about seven years or so, uh, six years as a sysadmin before that. And I applied for a consulting role and I'd worked in AppSec, I guess, for about six or seven years, had run vulnerability scanners, didn't have the hacking experience. But when I was talking to the hiring manager, he saw that I liked to build things, that I taught myself how to do uh, web design, hosted web servers at home. And he saw that and gave me a, a chance which, you know, technically he could have turned me down that role, but he saw the passion and my efforts to learn and that seemed to help. And I think really more employers need to do that, such as yourself, is to look at uh, people's passion and willingness to learn because you can have someone come in with maybe some certs and maybe a little bit of experience, but doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be there and are passionate about the job. Uh, 100%. We, we have a saying internally, you know, that when you go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning, you know less about this industry than you did the night before because things are moving that quickly. And in order to keep up with it, you, you got to have passion. You got to wake up wanting to do this, whether it's offensive security or, or otherwise, we're very offensive security focused. And so, yeah, that that passion will will win the day, I, I believe. Uh, even someone that is coming in with certs and experience, but you have someone that's, you know, again, first job or coming out of school, but they're hungry. They're going to do they're going to do great. And ultimately, they'll they'll be, I, I think, more successful than those folks that are just kind of turning it in. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things I like to share with people too, they're trying to get, get in the industry is, you know, trying to learn outside of, outside the job and not just depend on the job to get the experience or the job to pay for the training because some companies don't have the budget. And then if you just, you know, relying on the company to get the experience and get the, the education, then you're just kind of holding yourself back. Yes. And so, uh, you know, in terms of training, we kind of think about 70, 20, 10, uh, so 70% is just OJT. It's on the job training. 20% is, you know, uh, informal um, mentorship. So uh, we do things internally like the obscure and exotic vulnerabilities where we come in and we'll talk about, you know, these cool vulnerabilities or exploits that we've done and share them every Thursday, I think at like four. And then 10% is formal training. But to your point, we do support, you know, offensive security will pay for that, but you got to be autodidactic in this industry. You, you got to have love for it to continue to want to improve yourself inside of work and outside of work to really keep up with everything. I think those are the people that are the most, you know, successful. Um, and so the stuff that I do to keep up with it, like even have a, 
car hacking book uh, that Tim uh, on our team recommended to me. Even even in my position, I'm still you know constantly trying to keep up with the industry and everything that's going on. Yeah, that's that's very important. And one of the things is kind of interesting too. Uh, what are your kind of your views on specialization? Because you know uh, sometimes you know people start out as a generalist. Sometimes people specialize. What are your kind of views on that? Do you think someone should start out with especially in mind, get experience and then specialize? Uh, what are your thoughts? I, I, I think the answer is it depends. But generally speaking, I think about specialization as kind of an hourglass. And so when it comes to specialization, what I encourage people, if it is their first job or if they are just coming right out of school, you, you might have an idea of what you want to do, but you don't necessarily know because you haven't done it. And so start at the top of that hourglass and go broad. And so, you know, for us, we do offensive security, but we do hardware hacking, right? So autonomous vehicles, we do network red teams, we do applications, we do cloud, get a variety of those things. And, and then from there, determine what you want to specialize in and the hourglass begins to narrow and kind of uh, midway through your career, you're really focused on an area to, to excel at and get great at. And we're kind of structured like that as a company. But then as that specialization um, in, occurs and you become a subject matter expert, think about then broadening that specialization a little bit wider so that you're actually forming a T-shape uh, in terms of your, your, your capabilities. And, you know, so someone that might specialize in autonomous vehicles or vehicle hacking, a lot of those concepts and principles can be applied to, you know, medical devices. They can be applied to, um, you know, appliances within your house and specialize in a kind of a broader spectrum across across a particular stack. But for some folks that I, I meet coming out of college and I just am blown away by what they're able to do, you know, zero day exploitation and they're a junior, uh, they, they might already know at that point and have done enough that they have an idea of what they're really great at. And it's clear from what we're seeing, you know, the success uh, that that's probably what they should start out doing. But we, we try to make it none of it like a jail sentence either, right? You can move pods, you can move specializations, you know, um, if you uh, have had enough of a particular area at some point and you want to try something different. Very interesting. Yeah. Cause I know a lot of times if, you know, based on my experience and stuff too, it just seems like to a point too, after you've been in it for a while, if you're wanting to get really good at something, you kind of have to narrow your focus because trying to do everything and be good at everything can be kind of difficult and seeing some people from different uh, consulting companies, some that deal with more of the red team type stuff, or not doing as much web app, but it's interesting to the, to see that really to get really good. Sometimes you have to specialize after you've been in it for a while. Yep. Yep. We have teams that are dedicated to your, to your point about red team, red team operations. We also have separate, you know, teams that are focused on in day, O day, uh, you know, teams that are specialized in hardware, uh, you know, like, like I mentioned people that have done crypto, right. And focused on that, you know, for 15 years of their career at the agency before coming here and so there's, there is just too much to know that you'll ultimately do. Even if you start as a generalist, you want to kind of pick an area and really to, to be great at it. You got to, you got to kind of hyper-focus. So a question I always get all the time is people always ask, do I need to know how to code if I want to get into to security? Do you think that's a requirement for someone to get started? That's a good question. I mean, I, I think it depends on the area and I think it's not necessarily a requirement, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. Right. So you know, I started as a, as a developer working on operating systems. And because I have that background, when I would do these offensive security assessments against products, um, 
whether I was given the code or I had to reverse engineer, I had that capability because I started out as a developer. If you're focused more towards cloud or network, it's not necessarily a requirement. But again, first principles, system administration, you are a cloud architect, you're a cloud engineer, and then you just layer that offensive security on top. It is it is helpful, but I don't think it's necessarily a, a requirement. Yeah, a lot of times you get people that get too caught up in trying to learn to code first. You know, I've remember people that have, you know, decided they're going to learn Python before they even try to learn any pen testing. And sometimes it seems like they can kind of prevent themselves from really getting started in, in pen testing because maybe they're not really catching on to the coding at first and and kind of hold themselves back. Yeah, and it could it could it could create a you know an artificial barrier that's not that's not necessary. If you really want to get into penetration testing, um, you know, there are a lot of things that you can do to understand how offensive security works. And then once you get that bug, you know, kind of bit and confirm that this is what you really want to do, as you progress, you know, you can then think about maybe expanding certain open source tools or things like that and making code contributions. But you, you shouldn't let that be a barrier to, to entry. Otherwise, you might you might not ever get off the ground. Given your background and how long you've been in it, I'm just curious to to see what your your views are. Is you know when the the time you got into it, things weren't as easy to be able to exploit things because some of the tools compared to now. But then the targets seem to have gotten more difficult than what they were. So what's kind of your views on that then versus now, as far as the difficulty to learn the trade? Uh, versus now with the more advanced tools, but the more complex targets? I, I, I think that that word complexity is a, a really important word. So yeah, back then versus now, things are a lot more complex. Uh, the type of environments that you're, you're, you're targeting, the challenges to achieve goal or, or be successful at, at whatever that target or objective uh, might be. And so that it's kind of this double-edged thing that the more complex these systems get, I think the more vulnerabilities and exposures they have. They're just in, you know, different and sometimes more of a, a chainy sort of way. And then same thing in terms of entry um, uh, versus 20 years ago. When when I started 20 years ago, you know, you had systems that were on the internet um, at places like NASA and all these, you know, sort of critical infrastructure places that had open telnet with like, you know, username root, password root, that, that sort of stuff. That's gone away and things are much more complex. But what I've also seen as a change over time is 20 years ago, I'd be curious on your view, you know, but back then a bad day was like, maybe someone got their website defaced or maybe someone took over an IRC channel. And I've watched that go from sort of that sort of shenanigans to credit card and identity theft to, you know, um, geopolitical concerns as it relates to cyber to um, socioeconomic concerns. I could tell you stories about, you know, voting systems that we've looked at and all kinds of crazy stuff to really life and limb sort of impact, right? Whether it's a medical device or an autonomous vehicle that we had mentioned, I mean, the stakes have just continued to go up. And I think the level of um, threats and the sophistication of threat actors has gone up as these systems have become more complex. And so it's kind of a, you know, to, to me, a, a cat and mouse game uh, that's never ending over the last 20 years, but I'd be curious your, your thoughts on it as well. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It seems like the intent is more malicious than what it used to be. Just like you, as you mentioned, people defacing websites, you know, there really wasn't much, you know, going on then, you know, stealing and uh, monetizing information, you know, PII and so forth. 
there really wasn't so much of that. You know, now you got ransomware away for them to monetize things by encrypting data. Uh, and so it seems like the the monetization of it and the cyber crime of things have escalated a lot. It was really kind of kind of minor and you just didn't really see many places really get hacked. But like you said, sometimes it was defacement. And sometimes some of these hacker groups that were pretty well known back then, that's the kind of things they did is deface things and not really cause any harm to the systems or actually steal any data. So it is kind of interesting to see how that's changed. And you, and especially when you just think back to even five years ago, and I don't know if this is just people not reporting things, but things have gotten a lot more, uh, you know, severe than what they were a few years ago. You didn't really hear about all these big breaches that you do now. Yeah. Know, do you think part of that was not reporting it or just that it's advanced so much or escalated? I think some of that is not reporting it, you know, and, and with some of the the changes in laws like GDPR and, and sort of, you know, uh, rights around sort of breach notification, particularly of c- customer data. I, I think that that is part of it. But I, I think it's just a burgeoning field when it comes to attackers. And, you know, whether it was website defacements back then or, you know, like the code red and the slammer, you had these worms propagating through. But it was really more of a denial of service thing that people were running around patching. And you fast forward from the early 2000s to now, it feels like that there's two extremes and they're both pretty significant. One is sort of nation state targeting, right? And they're lifting and shifting out intellectual property or, or maybe they're trying to understand, you know, points of view on geopolitical concerns. And then the other side of it is it's not targeted like uh, like APTs. It's, it's more opportunistic, but there's monetization behind it. And to your point about ransomware, right? So they're not looking for, you know, Praetorian necessarily to, to be vulnerable. They're just looking for someone that's vulnerable to remote code execution or SQL injection or whatever the case is, encrypting the data and then asking you for a ransom to, to, to get it back. That's, we didn't see that, you know, 10, 20 years ago. That's, that's more of a new phenomenon. But I, I think people see how much money that you can make out of this stuff now. And it's, it's really changed the game. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting that you mentioned like the opportunistic type of attacks. And, you know, it's sometimes, I mean, there are some very advanced uh, threat actors out there, but I think sometimes people don't realize how lucky some of these breaches were. I mean, someone wasn't elite hacker to do some of these things, just a matter of something being misconfigured and them getting lucky, or maybe they looked through Shodan for the latest vulnerability and found something that effect, was affected by it and was able to get in. So it's interesting that there are a lot more talent, but at the same time too, there's a lot more opportunity. So what's kind of your view on that? Do you think it's just some of the availability of learning how to hack? Because, you know, at one time, you know, talking to people that were reformed black hats, they had to be part of hacker groups to learn how to hack and stuff. The information wasn't as readily available out there. You know, anyone could go on YouTube now and find all sorts of stuff for free but at one time it was a little harder to get a hold of that. Yeah, the 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 offensive security tools, techniques, you know, tactics, uh, all these sort of things, it's just free and unfettered at this point. You can find everything on the internet and even when it comes to to ransom groups that you had mentioned, you can just you don't have to, you know, leverage your own infrastructure or your own payloads. You can just ransomware as a service, right? Buy that from other teams on on the cheap to 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 get the outcome that you're looking for. And so Information is readily available, you know, attacking tools are readily available. And I think as even though these environments have uh, increased in complexity to your earlier point, it feels like a lot of this stuff is still just low hanging fruit and kind of like an 80-20 rule where 
you know, companies are still struggling with just the basic blocking and tackling of, you know, put in MFA in, don't, don't use weak passwords and, and that sort of stuff, uh, which makes, you know, non-sophisticated or opportunistic attackers successful. And you're, you're surprised at some of these stories and some of these data leaks and how they actually transpired. Yeah, security reminds me of the story where the, the two guys are out in the woods and the bear is coming or whatever, and one of them is getting ready to run. And his friend says, you can't outrun the bear. And says, no, but I can outrun you. That's kind of like security. A hundred percent. I totally agree with that that analogy. And you know, the, the harder thing about security too, particularly for defenders, is you have to be right all the time. Attackers only need to be right once. And that, you know, establishing a beachhead through that one system that was vulnerable, you can then kind of land and expand from there. And it's it's a really tough job on the defensive side. Uh, but yes, being faster than the than the bear, that's a that's a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah, because you know, the opportunistic hackers out there. So so we're getting down towards the end of the show. It's been a great conversation. Is there anything you'd like to share before we close the episode? I I think for folks that are looking to get into this industry. You know, for some of the things we talked about, it, it's an industry that has purpose. It has meaning, right? You you have the ability to have impact and know that, you know, you're working on something useful and with purpose. And so for anyone that is considering breaking into cybersecurity, uh, if you're new to the field and you don't have that experience that we had talked about, don't let that be a, a you know, a, a barrier for you. There are all kinds of ways to learn this stuff. We as an industry really do need help and we need more people getting into it. And so I'm really happy for this uh, podcast, Phil, and encouraging people to do so, because this is kind of one of the the big underpinnings that we need solved in, in cybersecurity. There's just not enough talent in this industry. Yeah, I totally agree. And hopefully more people, we can get more people in and and have companies like yours that are is more accepting to people to give them a chance. We've got to give more people a chance so we can help build up that deficit of uh, security professionals that we have. 100%. And, and on that note, thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed this. Yeah, thanks for, for joining. It was great to have you on here. Great to have you on for your first first podcast. That's been pretty cool. Very interesting background. And I enjoyed the conversation. So thanks again. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, too. Thanks, everyone, for joining. And we'll see you in the next episode. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hacker Factory podcast with Philip Wiley. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Thank you.